Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. You can find me on Twitter at BenLewisSN590. You can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. We are also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we are now through eight days of tennis on the red dirt of Roland Garros. And as we close in towards wrapping up what is in 2020 and only just for this year, the final Grand Slam of the season, the French Open. And uh, to recap all that we've seen happen in week one and maybe what we can expect moving forward, happy to be joined by our guest, a contributor for Tennis Now and a friend of the podcast, Chris Otto. Chris, uh, thanks so much for joining me this week. Ben, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, always, always a pleasure. And um, I, I wanted to start on the men's side, which I feel like has been less chaotic than the women's side, though we, we've seen some, some faces kind of emerge and quali- qualifiers play terrific tennis. But if, if we were to lead off kind of the two big names who everybody was, of course, talking about ahead of this draw, Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, uh, probably to, to keep it simple, the word I would use is, is domination to describe the performances from, from both of these players. Um, is, has one impressed you more than the other, would you say? Oh, I'd say they're equally dominant. I think Rafa was the more intriguing one to watch from the start of this tournament because of all you know, all the discussion we were having about the the heavy conditions, the wet conditions, and what happened to him in Rome with the loss to Schwartzman. So I think a lot of people were very concerned about how he would play. He's had a nice draw to start. So I don't think we know a lot about what he'll do when he gets a real tough contest, which we think he's going to have in the semis against Dominic Team. But I'd say overall, they Rafa's really impressed me, and I kind of knew it was going to happen. He was going to talk a little bit about how it was, you know, the challenges he was going to face and scare everybody, and then he was going to dominate like he always does. And now he's 97-2 and two at Roland Garros, and things are moving along fine for him. And the same with Novak. Novak has really impressed me as well. I mean, he's, I guess it's what we should have expected, right? Yeah, no, uh, no real surprises. Uh, you know, people raise their eyebrows. I think anytime Rafael Nadal loses a match on clay in the lead-in, but we've seen moments in the past where he's um, had struggles, I guess, for his standard of what he does on clay, uh, failed to win a few tournaments going into Roland Garros, and it is just a different type of beast to tackle, I think, in that best-of-five format. We had a lot of discussions about the conditions, obviously wet, obviously cold. It's a different tennis ball, but uh, you look at Nadal's road so far, as you said, I don't think he really has had a test yet uh, with wins over Gerasimov, McDonald, uh, Travaglia, and then Sebastian Korda. The most competitive set he's had is a uh, 6-4. Novak Djokovic, on the other hand, um, 25 games lost in four matches. Uh, I thought he was going to get more of a test against Karen Hatchinoff, but he also won that in straight sets. Uh, nothing closer in sets for him than six four and he has 28 breaks of serve um, through these four matches I, I think the thing that's probably impressed me the most about Novak is you know we we haven't seen even a remote blip since his fiasco since the U.S. Open he's just been rolling ever since yeah I think he's really determined right now to make some good out of this year we all know the kind of troubles he's had over the last few months with the Adria tour and you know, the media has been really tough on him and some of it's been deserved. And then what happened in New York was just horrible. Nobody expected that. And I still can hardly believe that it happened, that he was defaulted out of the U.S. Open. I mean, we all thought he was heading for that title and just going to make things even tighter in terms of 
the race for the all-time Grand Slam title lead, but it didn't happen. And But now I think he's back and he really wants to grab one before the end of the season. And, you know, you mentioned the match against Hatchinov today. I think he looked incredible in that match. I think Hatchinov is a guy who's very good on these in these conditions, very good at Roland Garros. I think it was fairly tight at times, and Djokovic handled himself really well. It's a nice match to see. It's nice to see him play well in a difficult match. Yeah, certainly, certainly impressive. And I guess obviously the, the one other name that, that people have pointed to who could have a chance to win this thing in the men's field, Dominic Team, of course, has been to the finals uh, the past two years and now officially has that breakthrough winning the U.S. Open. I think some maybe expected a possibility of a U.S. Open hangover, whether it just simply be fatigue, the emotions of that, that five-set roller coaster match against Zverev to, to get that win, to get his first Grand Slam title. But I've been very impressed by his play. And even in that sort of tricky fourth rounder where you had to navigate uh, a qualifier and Hugo Gaston was actually playing great tennis. He's kind of against the crowd. I, I think the team has handled the situation well. And I wouldn't be surprised if he hits another gear in his level uh, come the quarterfinals. I'd agree with that. I think given all that he's had to go through to get here um, physically and mentally, I thought it was going to be a real challenge for him, especially when he was handed a draw that started out with Marin Cilic. Jack Sock was kind of resurgent, so a tough second rounder. And then Casper Ruud was – every match he's had has been tough. Let's put it that way. And Gaston became uh, surprisingly difficult for him. I think that you're right. Dominic has played well, and he's alluded to the fact that he's starting – that he knows he's going to hit a wall at some point physically. He knows it. He's trying to put that off until after Roland Garros, and, and we're waiting to see if he can do that. I mean, Schwartzman next is going to be a challenge. Those guys, we all know Diego can be tricky, especially in these conditions. We saw what he did with Nadal in Rome. So that could be an interesting wide open match. And I just think that team needs to get through that relatively easily if he's going to be able to do any damage against Nadal. So I guess that's his mission, not only to win, but to win without having to go five sets again, because that wall he's talking about, it's there and he's approaching it. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd certainly agree. I'm, I'm looking just kind of a, across the draw at our potential quarterfinal matchups, and I'm trying to pick out um, upsets of of another player on the men's side who we could see conceivably doing damage. I don't, I don't know that any of us could foresee someone else other than those three players: Nadal, Djokovic, team potentially winning this thing, but. If you're staking your money somewhere, what is the player? Who is the name that maybe could pull off a, a shock type of upset outside of those three? I think Diego can beat Dominic. I think that to me is, I don't know if you'd call that a shock though, would you? Not a shock. It, it's certainly an upset. Then I'm wondering, yeah. can, can, we, can we get the shock? Like, is there someone there to beat Novak and is there someone there to beat I don't think someone is there to beat Nadal I, I can't I want to I want to have fun with this and say yes but I, I cannot see it I yeah. cannot I think that Rublev and, and Tsitsipas are, are both performing so well and I've, I've loved them I love Rublev since the U.S. Open he's really he's had a great year and he's yeah. a fantastic young player I just don't think those guys have what it takes right now to defeat Djokovic the way he's playing would you consider team over Nadal a shock? Certainly an upset. Okay. I, maybe Dominic has that in him. I wouldn't completely rule that out. Um, that's one thing that I would say is, is a small possibility, and that would have to happen if Dominic can get through Schwartzman without too much trouble, have a lot of energy. The guy's a pretty special player, and he's been proving that over the years, and he certainly came up big 
and freed himself up maybe with the win in New York. So if he does face Nadal, maybe he'll have the confidence to get over the hump if they get in a close one. Yeah, yeah, that, that's certainly a possibility. And you mentioned Rublev and Tsitsipas. To me, that's probably, for my money, the best quarterfinal matchup in the draw. We just saw these two kind of go toe-for-toe, shot-for-shot at the Hamburg Open, um, just, just the previous event. I think some people at the beginning, because both of these guys had trouble getting through their early round matches, long five setters that they thought, did these two overplay and make the mistake of, of playing Hamburg prior? But uh, it's, it's actually proved to be fruitful because both seem to be playing their best tennis right now. Yeah, I mean, Rublev has been a great story. I mean, yeah, that was funny, wasn't it? They, they played the Hamburg final. Everybody's questioning them, saying, why are they playing a Sunday final? And Roland Garros had already started at that point. They yeah. both come down and fall behind two sets to love in their openers. And you're thinking, these guys are gone. And this is kind of a bummer because they're two players we like to watch. They're exciting young players. Yeah. We want to see them progress. The season's about to end. It's going to end on a sour note for these guys. But, man, they pulled through. They showed a lot of determination. And to set up this matchup, I think, is a, is a big win for both of them. Whoever gets through it is going gonna, is gonna to move on to the semis and likely face Djokovic. And that's the challenge you want. That's the challenge we always talk about with these young players, the chapeaus of the world. The FAAs, they don't necessarily have to get there and win, but if they can get there and get that taste, maybe suffer a defeat, but maybe grow in the process, that's what's going to set them up for long-term success. So I think Sitsipas, Rublev, in that sense, have done real good work being where they are. Yeah, uh, you, you provided me the, the perfect segue, and I, I wouldn't be doing my job if we didn't touch upon the Canadian players. And probably evaluation-wise, this French Open, not anywhere – near the results we had at the U.S. Open in terms of Canadian players, particularly on the men's side, Denis Shapovalov. I think we felt going into this tournament, he was playing great tennis. He, he played awesome at the U.S. Open. Uh, he finally made the top 10, just getting to the quarter, by virtue of getting to the quarterfinals in Rome. So we felt like this guy knows what he's doing on the clay court surface. And we felt like he had a draw that he could maybe navigate and, and get a few wins and get a sniff at the second week. Roberto Carbias Baena, He's a good clay court competitor, but I, I don't think we, we really viewed him as an appropriate th uh, threat to beat Denis Shapovalov in the second round. And uh, there we have it, though. RCB taking out Denis. And just a few weeks ago at the U.S. Open, it was PCB, another Spaniard, taking out <laughs> Denis. So Shapo seems to be getting some tough luck with these uh, three-named Spaniards. Yeah, I mean, let's preface this discussion by saying that Shapo has really made big strides. Uh, quarterfinal at the U.S. Open was massive. Yeah. The three victories, I mean, you've probably already gone over it on your show, but the three victories that he won to get to that quarterfinal were all real impressive. The mental toughness, the fortitude he's been showing over these last – Three months have shown how much he's developed under Misha Mikhail Yuzhny and with his new uh, sports psychologist that he keeps talking about with me, who's named Badim, but he, he does, he's unable to get me the last name of the guy every time I ask him. But it's clearly helping him. He's calmer. He's, he's showing a lot of poise. He had the semi in Rome, which to me was a breakthrough on clay for him, and the way that he played with Schwartzman there was impressive. And the RCB match was a bummer, but let's, I think we all know that if he had gotten that break on that one call, he would have had two match points and it could have easily gone a different way. He could have easily made a deeper run. But I think in the end, you look at the strides he made post lockdown and you say it was a big success for him. He's got the top 10 ranking. He's got the great result, the US Open. He proved a bit about his potential on clay and he's just got to go come back to Roland Garros and do it on the big stage. But overall, very good for him, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, certainly agree. Uh, Felix Ogier, I assume, you know, 
it's just tough in this 2020 season to give a full evaluation of a player and, and just kind of write them off and say, well, they had a really bad clay court campaign. We, we barely saw a clay court camp campaign. And that is part of the problem when uh, you go through six plus months without tennis and have this quick turnaround. Felix played great at the U.S. Open, made the round of 16 for the first time ever at a slam, but uh, he tries to get his feet wet on the clay and early loss in Rome. He got one win in Hamburg and then uh, Yoshihito Nishioka, uh, who is a tough competitor, very quick around the court. I knew this was going to be a fun match, and, and Felix just looked like he struggled to, to hit through him and really didn't seem to know what to do tactically and unfortunately bows out in the first round of this tournament. How do you, I guess, evaluate the clay, the clay campaign, even though it was a tough one? It was real bad for Felix. It's not what he wanted, but I think, you know, young guy like like Felix making the transition from hard court to clay in this whole environment where the turnaround was ridiculously quick the conditions in Paris are ridiculously heavy and unlike they have ever been before so he's forced to sort of play in an environment and in a way that he never has before I would I would bet I didn't get to talk to him after his press after the first rounder but I think he didn't adapt well he didn't play well on clay at all something maybe is going on in terms of just wasn't able to produce good tennis. I think you can look at it as, man, it's been a strange year. Felix made some strides on the hard court. The U.S. Open was big for him. And let's face it, he hasn't won that many matches at slams. Dennis has won, I think, twice as many. At the U.S. Open alone, Dennis has twice as many matches that Felix has on all the slams combined. Felix needs to kind of get more comfortable in his own skin, more comfortable at the big stages, more consistent, needs to conquer that second serve, a lot of things he needs to work on potential sky high yeah not a good clay season I mean that's how I'll finish it but you know and and it's disappointing because you want to see more from him soon we all want it to happen so fast but it's going to happen I don't have any doubt in my mind about Felix even on clay I think he's great on that surface and ultimately will probably have better results than Dennis if I had to predict on clay yeah, I'm not so sure after this year, though. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough to gauge. I think if we were looking at last season's result and Felix had many of his first ever breakthroughs on the clay court surface, a real open final when he was just 18 years old. That happened on clay, a couple clay court finals. So he's comfortable on the surface, unusual year, unusual conditions, and uh, just didn't happen for him. Um, but we, we move on quickly, and I'm sure he will too. Before we get to the women's side, I, I do want to talk about uh, Sasha Zverev. Um, who I feel it's necessary to touch on because uh, coming off the U.S. Open final, we weren't quite sure what to make of how he would fare, how he would get over such a tough loss like that at Flushing Meadows. Um, gets to the round of 16 here, loses to Yannick Sinner, and uh, post-match admitted to playing the match sick, said he had a fever, temperature apparently over 100. And this became kind of a talking point in terms of the organizers at Roland Garros was the French Tennis Federation doing enough to monitor players in terms of protocols. Like, should he have even been allowed to play this match? Now, I know he did issue, I think, a paper from his doctor on Instagram. He tested negative for COVID. He had had a test five days prior to this match. But I, you wonder, was, was this all sort of a mistake optics-wise, given what's happening? Optics-wise, yeah, it didn't look great. I think when you have some time to let it sink in and realize that he said – he became ill after his third round match against Chekinato. So he had two days of maybe with a fever. And you have to think some of the symptoms he had are sort of similar to the symptoms you have if you have COVID. You would have liked to think that 
he would have gone somewhere and told somebody, which is supposedly what the players are supposed to do these days. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a little bit silly of him to talk about it the way he did in press and tell everybody that he was sick and how long he was sick for and that he had a fever and then to refuse to answer the questions that came from other um, reporters about it. It was strange. I think he's, he's had a little bit of a rough summer in terms of his, his responsibility level and respect for the virus. And I think a lot of players do. And I think it's true what, from what we're hearing that Roland Garros is a little bit looser, puts a little bit more responsibility on the players. And that's maybe good for some players, but maybe bad for players who could get innocent. I mean, you think of the worst case scenario here, which is that Sinner gets infected because he's the guy who played Zverev yesterday. Sinner goes to play Nadal. Imagine if Nadal or Djokovic comes out down with COVID and, and we're forced to not have a final or something strange like this. So it is definitely scary. I wasn't really happy to see the way things went down with Zverev. And you have to wonder, um, I mean, we're going to be in this environment for a while. So it's a lesson to be learned for future tournaments for the next Grand Slam. But it looks like Paris has been a little bit lax. I'm surprised they haven't had as many issues as you know, I thought they might have more given how lax it's been. It seems to be on par with what happened in New York. In fact, New York seemed to even have more COVID drama. So right. as, as hard as we might want to be on what's happened at Roland Garros, the results that they've put up in terms of people coming down with COVID and controversies hasn't been too bad. And this was kind of a near miss with Zverev. So I guess they kind of got away with one. Yeah, yeah. I think near miss is a, a good description of that. And a lot of players actually have been critical of of the organization, um, what has existed, I think, in Paris at Roland Garros, that essentially the scenario is not a bubble. Uh, it was very clear that at Flushing Meadows, the players were in a bubble and they couldn't come and go. But other players uh, here in Paris, the French Open, have said they, they've seen others bringing in guests, like in the hotel and people coming yeah. and going. And, and that just didn't exist at, uh, at the U.S. Open. So uh, could be problematic. I mean, you know, in an ideal world, we won't have to go through this scenario ever again. In an ideal world, we will have fans back in 2021, but uh, this is hard to predict at this point. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's a bit crazy what's going on in Paris because they elected to have the fans and then they had to trim down the volume of fans from 11,000 to 500 to 5,000 and then ultimately 1,000. And as you can see, as you watch it on TV, there are very few people there, but it still creates a risk. And as you talked about, the hotel has been an issue with players because there are regular civilians at the hotel who may or may not have the virus that are on elevators with players and stuff. And I guess, yeah, it's, it's tough. I think they could have been a little bit tighter. I think in a perfect world, they would have been. Um, Let's hope Australia future tournaments do a better job. Yes, that is uh, certainly the hope. You are listening to Match Point Canada. Our guest this week from tennis now, uh, Chris Otto, as we're breaking down uh, the first week of Roland Garros and uh, in the midst, early on in the midst of our second week. And uh, we jump over to the women's field, which is a fascinating draw because I, I can say with confidence, I really don't know who is going to win this title. It feels very, very up in the air. And we have three first-time quarterfinalists in this field. Iga Swiatek of Poland, who is a, a bright young teenage star, Martina Trevisan, and uh, Nadia Podoroska, who I will readily admit I wasn't even familiar with her before this tournament started. We'll, we'll get no to comment. her in a bit, but uh, I, I do want to start with uh, Iga Swiatek because uh, she's had such an impressive run. I did have the treat of seeing her live in Toronto last year uh, in 2019. Was very impressed up close in person watching her play a high level match against Naomi Osaka. So she's been on my radar for a while. And you look at the way this draw started out. I was worried for her because she's she's facing 
a French Open finalist in Marquette Vondrasova. Breezes through that match, beats the veteran uh, Seisu Wei. Jeannie Bouchard, who's, you know, really had uh, a resurgence of late, uh, which we've been talking about here. She's been playing uh, great, really, the past month. Uh, she defeats her in straight sets and then just absolutely blitzes Simona Halep, 6-1, 6-2. I, just the way she's going right now, does this feel like kismet maybe? Because she just, she just looks unstoppable right now and is, is the aggressor in every match she is playing. She's been so impressive, right? I mean, I mean the, the beautiful part of the story is the, the full circle from 2019. Halep just blitzed her last year, 45 minutes and dropped one game. And that was, of course, Svantec's debut at Roland Garros. She reached around a 16. It was mighty impressive that she got that far. She took that loss pretty seriously, evidently. Um, needed just 68 minutes to dispatch the 2018 champion with an impressive performance. I don't know if you can fault Halep for what happened in that match. Fiontech was so aggressive, so on it with such energy. I'm, I, I was really amazed by how well she played. And now she's playing a qualifier from Italy in the next round, who's been another amazing story, Martina Trevisan. So I, I think you have to put Fiontech as the favorite. And potential winner of the title i would say yes why not yeah why why not is a it's the good question indeed just the the way she's playing and of course the way this draw has opened up we've seen so many of the top 10 uh, fall by the wayside of course and just these surprise results and um not only the ball striking i think from Iga Sviantek just and the aggression on the court but she has a lot of creativity for a teenage player seeing her utilize the the drop shot and surprise Simona Halep and, it, and it's hard to execute a drop shot against Halep who has terrific court coverage but she was employing that plenty in that fourth round match uh she has some angles just like a lot of variety for someone who is still young and, and a newer face on the WTA yeah she's a she's a special player for sure um she got a lot of praise at the U.S. Open. I don't know if you caught that, but she lost to Azarenka in the third round, and, and Vika just gave glowing praise. And Vika's kind of like a motherly figure on the tour, but it was, uh, was well-deserved. And, yes, she, I think she's a really creative player that does mix variety. Yeah, she can bang the forehand. I think it, a really one of the probably 10 biggest forehands out there. But in addition, you're right. She's creative. She's improvisational. Um, she had some issues in the East Coast, so this is a real nice response for her. Um, she said she came to New York and Cincinnati, you know, New York out of the bubble and had high expectations because a lot of players were missing. She felt like it was an opportunity for her to do some serious damage. Of course, she's not even in the top 50 at the moment. Yeah. She has high hopes for herself, but uh, she needed to kind of calm down, take the time and go back home after the U.S. Open and has just come back, come out like gangbusters, playing so well. She's also in the quarterfinals of doubles. Um, very impressive young player. Yeah, I think that's this is a name and a player we're going to be watching a lot for uh, in the next few years for sure. Yeah, certainly. And if you're uh, you're listening to this episode tonight, you should get up tomorrow morning, and she will be playing uh, Martina Trevisan, who came through in qualifying, and uh, she has had a tough road. You look at the matches; it's not like this draw just sort of opened up for her. She's had to beat some big name players to get to the quarterfinals. I think sometimes we see a qualifier make a deep run, and you think, well, maybe she was a beneficiary of some big time upsets. But uh, you look at, you know, early on, Camille Georgie is a tough first round test. She beats Coco Goff, of course, in the second round. Now, now Goff had a lot of issues with double faults in that match, but still a great win in three sets. Maria Sakari, who can play terrific tennis. That's another three set win. And then, then Kiki Burton's who's probably her best surface is clay winning that in straight sets to get here. So it has not been an easy road at all. 
no, this, this is kind of a ridiculous story when you think about it. She had lost 16 straight against the top 100. She had never won a match at a major before. She's a qualifier, so now she's got seven matches under her belt. She plays, she's five foot three. She plays a very kind of uh, defensive, kind of counterpunchy type of game. I don't quite understand why she's doing so well, but maybe the slow surface and the slow bounce is, is helping her. Um, she's been great though. She's feisty. She's intense. Um, and she's a great story. She told, uh, we were kind of learning her story as we go here because she's never been inside the top 150 and seen her a lot, but apparently she took five years off the tour from like 2010 to 2014, had an eating disorder, had personal problems, was totally out of the game, then returned and has spent about five years toiling away at the challenger level. That's why none of us have ever heard of her, but here's this breakout moment. And it's just, it's just great to see. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't even. I mean, there have been so many crazy stories from players. Uh, Podoroska is another one that maybe we'll get to. Never, never knew a thing about her hardly, and it's just, it's just wild to see these players that are outside of the top 100 in the quarterfinals. Yeah, it, it, it's completely wild, and uh, let's let's get to her now because as we're going through just the top half of this women's draw, uh, Iga, of course, taking that top spot uh, against. Trevisan, and then Alina Svitolina, who has had a nice road to get here to the quarterfinals and certainly an opportunity uh, as she's, you know, the one top five remaining, sorry, pardon me, not one top five, one of two top five remaining players in this field. Sophia Kennan's still in the mix, but Svitolina there. And, uh, you know, Svitolina at least admitted to this upcoming match that she's going to have to do some research on uh, her upcoming opponent in Nadia Podoroska. And as I said earlier, I had no idea who this player was. And here she is in the quarterfinals of the major. Yeah, she comes in ranked 131, qualified. Um, one match at a, at a major before in her career, it came at 2016 at the US Open. I did find out that she won the Pan Am Games last year, which was really big for her and really big for South American players. And that enabled her to get some financial help from the Argentinian foundation. She's got a lot of support from, I've seen tweets from Gabriela Sabatini, Andres Gomez, who was a champion here from Ecuador 30 years ago. She's got support. She's a real good looking player. When I watch her, I, I wonder why she hasn't been able to climb into the top 100. Um, but she's here now. So let's enjoy her and see what she can do against Fidelina, who I think will be, you know, there's still some really talented players and high seeds, as you mentioned, with Kvitova also in the mix. These are going to be the favorites. They're going to be facing immense pressure as they go against some uh, lesser known talents in the quarters. Yeah. And I, I think really um, the pressure in this situation, it's, it's squarely on the shoulders of Alina Svitolina because you look at the remaining names in this field and you're talking about a player who has done so well on the WTA circuit in terms of uh, career titles uh, performing at the, premier level, winning mandatories, winning premier fives, WTA finals champion, and kind of a handful of semifinals, quarterfinals on the resume. Alina Svitolina, I think to, to some, would be in line here for an opportunity to capture a major. So, so the pressure to me is, is squarely on her shoulders to, to get this done and, and get an opportunity to do that. I, I agree. I think um, she's mentally tough enough to handle it. I think it's, she's a kind of a late bloomer in terms of playing well at the slams. It took her, what, 26 years to really break through, seven years at the slams to break through and hit the semifinals, which she then did last year at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open back-to-back. -back. Very impressive. Always thought Roland Garros was going to be her best slam. It might prove to be. She's already got two quarterfinals here. She's in good shape with this draw. Let's, let's put it that way. And, yes, there'll be some pressure, but 
she's the player that really should be able to handle these matches if she's really on form. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And as I said, so we have two of the top five remaining of the seeds still in this field. Sophia Kennan coming off uh, an emotional win over Fiona Farrow. This is a really up and down match. She started slow and then, and then kind of got hot for a while because she dropped that first set 6-2 and then stormed to take the next two sets 6-2, 6-1 and arrives in the quarterfinals. I guess I, I had a bit of a tough gauge in what to make of her form at the U.S. Open because you're looking at someone who won a Grand Slam at at the beginning of the season, you're seeing, can they follow that up and, you know, not necessarily win another grand slam title, but, but show that she is kind of that big match player who's going to be consistently making deep runs at slams. And I felt like a round of 16 kind of losing pretty handily to Elise Mertens was probably quite disappointing for her. Um, And, and the French open is not a tournament. I really pegged as her to be a major threat, but uh, she's definitely playing some solid tennis and has to be a contender, I think, when we look at the eight names remaining. Yeah, I mean, you can say, you can look at uh, Sophia Ken at the Grand Slams in 2020 and look at her record, and it's 14-1 and one right now. So it's, it's, it's not bad at all. And um, today, impressed after her win, which was a very strange match, um, she um, – was talking about her comfort level with clay and in the European clay specifically and how she feels great over here. Now it's really opened up last year when she reached the round of 16, she beat Serena Williams. That was like her coming out party really at the slams overall. And since then she's been able to build on it. Of course, winning the Australian open, she's feisty. She's tough. She doesn't win pretty all the time, but she usually finds a way to print to win. And that's what happened today against Fiona Farrell down a set, just absolutely took that match over and sort of like, used the crowd and the energy the crowd was giving to Pharaoh and like, you know, kind of went on a mission and uh, won 12 of the final 15 games. So, I mean, you have to think she's another one that has the potential to, to take this a little bit further. Um, potential winner. Sure. Why not? I mean, you know, it feels like it's, it's interesting with her. She doesn't feel like a real powerful force, one that you can say takes the racket out of players' hand, but she's just so mentally tough and, and really is a good big match player, as she's shown this year. Yeah, and uh, I guess we have an interesting dynamic of the remaining players, and Kenan will get the winner of Angebur and uh, Daniel Collins, and, and Collins took out one of my, one of my players, not, not actually my pick to win it, as that was Simona Halep, who was, of course, gone, but I, I thought this was a great opportunity for Garbina Muguruza to, to maybe make a nice deep run at the French Open, and Collins... Uh, as you just used that phrase, kind of took the racket out of her hands the way she played in that third set. And she is such a powerful ball striker when she is on. And, and we've seen that from her in the past. Her and then the other name I look at as a player who can really take the racket out of your hands is Petra Kvitova. And of course, two-time Wimbledon champion. We've been waiting to see her get back at this stage and wondering if she can win another Grand Slam. She's been so close. And this opportunity to me is also ripe, ripe for the picking. Petra's in a nice place here. It's a little bit of a sweet spot for her. She made her comeback from that terrible injury that she suffered, um, you know, at the hands of her murderer where she suffered that knife attack and was out for a while and went through so much emotionally. She made her return at Roland Garros. Um, and I think that kind of like forged a little bit of a bond for her here where she's connecting with the place. You think of her as a Wimbledon player. That's where she's a two-time champion. But you, you think that maybe here in Paris – She's got a little bit less pressure. I think she comes to Wimbledon with the weight of the world on her shoulders, like she should be able to win this tournament and I need to do it and prove myself. Here, I think there's no pressure. 
maybe these slow conditions work for her because she's one of the few rare beasts that can hit through this kind of sloggy clay. So I do really like the way she's playing and the way it sets up for her. Yeah, no, you, you make a perfect point. That's why I kind of liked her at the start of the tournament. I was thinking uh, with these conditions slowing things down, maybe you think in your mind that's actually going to hinder an aggressive type of player, but she has so much power from the back of the baseline that I think is actually a little more difficult to counter for some of her opponents that she's facing. And as you said, she is capable of hitting through this clay. And, and it gives her time. And I think a lot, of, a lot of players we were looking at, these Madison Keys and so-and-so kind of fell by the wayside early, but right. it's working for Petra. So um, watch out for her. I mean, Sigamon next is a very winnable match, but tricky player. It's, these things are hard to predict. I think, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but we kind of latch on to like the hottest player from the last round and assume that they're invincible. And a lot of times we're wrong, but it's hard to see Petra. It's hard. It's, it's easy to see Petra going on a run and, and winning her third major. Sure. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I, I do want to transition to, to some Canadian talk on the women's side. And uh, Petra Gavitova actually played one of our Canadians in the third round. Uh, Layla Fernandez, who, of course, you know, has had really a breakthrough 2020 season, getting to the top 100. She played so well at the front end of the year, still a teenager. And uh, we saw some great strides at the U.S. Open. And now for her to make a third round of a French Open is, is a terrific story for Layla. And I actually thought she was quite competitive in her match with Petra Kvitova. You look at the scoreline, 7-5, 6-3, and it was, it was kind of a, a first opportunity to play a, a player of such a pedigree on, on a big court. She did play Sophia Kennan at the U.S. Open, but uh, she seemed even more prepared this time. And uh, this is just another step forward for a Canadian that, um, in my eyes, I, I have hopes that, you know, maybe she, she could be like a future top 10. We don't know yet, but she's playing that way. Yeah. I love her professionalism. I love the way she sees the game and plays the game. I love her footwork. You're right. She was up 5-1 on Petra Kvitova and ready to take that match. It, it had to, it, Kvitova really had to storm back and take it from her. Um, Layla's not going to give you a match. She's feisty. She's, she's got a lot of stuff going for her, a good variety in her game, and still very young and inexperienced. I mean, she had one Grand Slam win coming into this. So, yeah, to get to the third round, to face that challenge of Kvitova, to be extremely disappointed when it was over, and to have expected better from herself, I thought was shows a lot about where she sees herself going in this game. So, yeah, big positives for her. You know, like, like 2021 is going to be a nice, nice time to check her out and learn more about her. Yeah, certainly. I, I think before when we were kind of characterizing her game, like early 2020, she had a Fed Cup win over Belinda Bencic. I kind of viewed her as like, she's proving she belongs. And, and now she has the mindset of like, she believes she can win every match she plays. Yeah, picked up a lot of confidence in Acapulco. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I just, she's so mature. Talking to her, it's um, you're just like, wow, this this is a really a, a person who's really serious about this, and I think who's going to be able to produce a really solid career. You mentioned top ten, I don't see why not, but I think she's going to get every ounce that she can out of her career, and I think she's going to be a great one to watch for Canadian fans for a long time. I think she's she's really hungry to, to keep moving up the ladder. 
Yeah, uh, speaking of hungry to, to move up the ladder, um, we've seen her at the, the pinnacle of our sport before in Canadian tennis is Jeannie Bouchard, who, of course, in the past has been to a Wimbledon final. Uh, we thought she was the next superstar. You know, we, we've covered trials and tribulations of Jeannie for several seasons when things did not work out for her, when she was hampered by form, hampered by some injuries. Um, and I, I don't think it's an overstatement when I say just like the past month or two of her tennis is, is really some of the best I've seen. And I want to say at least like three years or so uh, the way she's playing. She's, she seems like she's in a completely different headspace. There's a lot of good stuff going on. Um, it seems up in her head, as you mentioned, um, emotionally, I think the, the relationship with Gil Reyes has really helped her. She has that mentor that maybe was missing in her career. Um, he seems to be rubbing off on her really positively, both emotionally, spiritually, but also she's in great shape. She's really confident about going three sets in some of these matches. She was really willing and able to grind on the clay and uh, making the third round was, was nice to see for her. I think, it was, I think a lot of people were hoping it could go a little further that you know, maybe she would beat Fiontech, maybe go on a run here. It's not the time for that yet, but the fact that she's trimmed her ranking, and I think live rankings show she'll be around 140. Now she's in striking distance to start not needing wild cards to get back in the top 100, play main draws, and see if she can do this consistently. I think that'll be the key for her. I still think she's there, and I love that she's, she's, she's hanging around, she's hungry, and she's really humble and just going after it right now. So, yeah, impressive in a lot of ways from Bouchard. Yeah, and uh, just an amazing turnaround in the rankings, as you mentioned, in the live rankings, around 140 now. We go back a few months ago when we spoke to her, actually, the front end of July, and we were talking about with her how she's going to build up build up her ranking again. And at that stage, she was 332nd in the world. And we thought she has a long road ahead of her uh, to, to make this happen and make this work and being able to play in these Grand Slam fields again. But uh, what a difference a few great tournaments can make. You make a WTA final um, just a few weeks ago. She played great in Prague as well. Istanbul was the final, pardon me. And, and now third round of the French Open. Uh, just just really feels like a different player right now. Also, uh, Rene Stubbs and that coaching partnership I think has paid some great dividends as well yeah I think yeah I think she's in pretty good shape right now it's just a matter of just kind of that 250 final in Istanbul I think was her first final in four years yep. need to see more of that need to see these are draws she can get in and make runs if she can make consistent runs a couple of months and get that ranking up inside the top 50 and then have a lot more confidence in her game and then start going into these slams with that confidence she could return and, and be a more um just a just to have a, be a more solid player in terms of one to watch and one to expect a little bit more from at the slams, which would be nice. I mean, it's hard to believe she's a former world number five and the Wimbledon finalist. Things have really changed a lot since then, and it's been a while, but I love that she's still scrapping and fighting and wanting to get back. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, Chris, before you, before we let you go, I'll, I'll challenge you with the, the million dollar question. Did, did you have any picks ahead of the tournament on, on women's side of who would win this title? And uh, if so, how did that pan out? And where are you kind of wavering now of, of who you're, you're picking to win this title? Oh, yeah, I've been dead wrong. I think Halep was, was my pick. It just seemed like she was ready after Rome and just in general. And I thought the slow surface would be perfect for her. She can just grind and, and use her consistency and her, her stamina. Without her, I'm totally at a loss. 
<laughs> we had this discussion and you made me see the light that maybe Sfiontech is ready to do something beyond Bianca Andreescu-ish. So oh, why not go with that? Why not? All right. So Igos Biontek. And uh, as we were speaking about her variety, it was making me think of Bianca, actually, which like such the, the power aggression game, but the mix of the slice and drop shots and just being able to do different things on the court, I think, uh, and at her age is so impressive and, and so helpful in these types of matches. Good comparison to making. Gosh, do I miss her. A, a year without Bianca. Who would yeah. have thought that we, the, it's fine. It's been a bad year anyway. Can't wait to see her again, though. Trust me, we're missing her as well. I'm, I'm sure she'll be back in the front end of 2021. I'll go um, in another direction of, of the player we were just talking about who beat our Canadian, Layla Fernandez. Let's, let's just agree and, and say maybe the Grand Slam champion will be a player who beat a Canadian, either Igas Fiontek or I'm going to pick Petra Kvitova and see if that's possible for her. I think the way the draw is opening up for her and just the tennis she's playing, uh, great opportunity ahead for her. Men's side, did you have a pick? Yep, and I'm, I think it's – I still believe that it will be Novak, and I just think the reason is very scientific. He's in, up, in that upper half by himself, and Rafa and Dominic Team are in that lower half, and they're going to have to stress out and, like, scratch and claw at each other to get to the final. And I think that little bit of an edge combined with the way Novak's playing, I'll tip him as the fave. Okay, okay. I did pick uh, Rafael Nadal at the front end of the tournament just because I, I just don't – I. Anytime I've attempted to pick against Nadal of the French, it always would come back to bite me that I, I don't want to make that same mistake uh, a second or third time. And, uh, but, but you're right. Uh, the path there, Dominic team having to play Nadal in the semifinal, which I feel very confident is going to happen, could make a big, big difference in Novak's chances of winning this title. Or maybe even Dominic team has a chance to get to that final. Uh, but we will see. Uh, before we go, I'll remind our Matchpoint Canada listeners, we are going to have one more week of our contest that we're giving away a signed tennis ball uh, from U.S. Open finalist uh, this year, Victoria Azarenka, uh, who bowed out in the second round of the French Open, but she's been playing such terrific tennis. Um, signed ball from Victoria Azarenka. So all you have to do to get in on the draw is uh, retweet this episode. Chris, thanks so much uh, for joining me on Matchpoint Canada and uh, recapping the first week of Roland Garros. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Ben. Enjoy the rest of the tournament. I'm going to retweet and get that ball. <laughs> Sounds good. You'll be in the contest. You've been <laughs> listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. song I wrote you might want to sing it note for note don't worry